and a conqueror in the year 2017. Um, how many of you would love to live as more than a conqueror? You look at 2016 and you think, wow, I had some, some challenging things happen to me. Maybe some difficult things happened to me. I'm ready for 2017. I'm ready for a new beginning, a new start in the year 2017. Well, I want to talk about living as more than a conqueror in the year 2017. And uh, what I would hope that you would do as a result of this message is that you would take some time out this afternoon. I realize this afternoon is, is a great football day, a really good football day. And I would encourage you to take some time out this afternoon and to maybe think about what would it mean for me to live the year 2017 with a sense of the victory of Christ? What would that mean for me? And all the things that I've got going on, what, what would that mean for me? Well, to, to kind of set this up, I want, I want you to think for a second about the Chicago Cubs. I grew up five years of my growing up years in Chicago. And our youth group frequently went to Cubs games. And during those years, the Cubs, game, Cubs were really good. They were, they were like uh, coming in second and third, never first, but second and third. And we were always out in the bleachers, way, way off in the back part of Wrigley Field. My father-in-law also was a very big Cubs fan and loved the Cubs as, as, as long as I can remember. Well, if you're a Cubs fan, you had to put up with a lot of, a lot of stuff. And so I, I want you to see some of the things that happened. You know, here, here was a statement. Every team has a, a bad century, right? Right? Because the Cubs, you know, last time they won the World Series before this one was 1907-08. Uh, Chicago Cubs fans are 90% scar tissue. That was George Will who, who came up with that one. Or another one, keep calm and come on. You know, it's bad year, bad game, keep calm and, and come on. Here's another one. Choke is the official soft drink of the Chicago, the Chicago Cubs. Uh, why are Cubs fans the best to date? They're never expecting a ring. <clears throat> uh, here's, uh, here's a Cubs player being interviewed. Why, why'd you stay with the Cubs? Well, I was promised October's off. Don't have to worry about that. Here's the manager, the manager of the Cubs, repeating <coughs> the thing I said before. Last time the Cubs won the World Series was 1908. I think the last time they were in one was 1945. Hey, any team can have a bad century. Uh, here's my favorite one. Hi, my name is Dave. I'm a Cubs fan. Hi, Dave. A support group for Cubs fans. Well, finally, they won it in 2016. And if you followed the game, you know they, they won it in the most exciting possible way in the seventh game in extra innings, and they pulled it out. Cubs won their, their first World Series in over 100 years. Now, I want you to think about how you stand if you were a Cubs fan today. You're feeling like you're a winner, like you're a victor, like you're an overcomer. You feel like you're walking in the victory of your team. But I want to ask you, did you, did you play in that World Series if you're a Cubs fan? No. Did you hit any, any runs in that game? Nope. Did you make any plays in that game? Nope. Most of the fans didn't go to the game. So in what sense are you now a victor? In what sense are you now a winner? You're a winner because you've identified with the Chicago Cubs. And you are walking in their victory because you are identifying yourself with them as a team. And you are a winner. Well, the same thing applies in your relationship with Christ. 
we live in the epic victory of Jesus. Jesus' victory defines all victories. On the plane on the way back from, from Madrid, I, I watched uh, a portion of the three movie Lord of the Rings trilogy movies. That was an amazing story, amazing story of victory. Well, the victory of Christ is the, is the quintessential victory of all victories. And you stand in that victory. Now, did you go to the cross? No. Did you die on the cross? No. Did you rise from the dead? No. Did you ascend to heaven? No. Are you seated at the right hand of the Father? No. Well, in what sense then are you victorious? It's because you are identified with the epic, eternal victory of Jesus. And what God's passion is, is that you would walk boldly in that victory. The victory of Christ, to whom, with whom you are identified. Now, here's the thing about walking in the victory of Christ. You have to be confident that you are loved by him. You have to be confident that you are loved by him. Uh, encountering victory comes from sensing that we are secure in the Father's love. You know, one of the things that I often hear from people <clears throat> that I'm counseling, or maybe that I'm discipling, or maybe in Celebrate Recovery, or maybe in friendships, I will hear people say these words. Sometimes, sometimes I sense God, God loves me, yeah, but he doesn't like me. Have you ever felt that? Oh, I know God loves me because God is love, but I just sort of sense he doesn't like me. Like if, if he was choosing friends, He'd choose a lot of other people, and I'd be, I'd be here on the outside. He loves me, but he doesn't like me. You will never walk in the victory of Christ if you entertain those thoughts. Walking in Christ's victory in the year 2017 means that you come to the place where you sense that he loves you, that he likes you, that he wants to be your friend, your Abba Father, your God. And this morning, what I hope to do is demonstrate to you proof positive that God loves you and you are secure in his love. And I want to give you some, some examples of that, proofs of the Father's love. First proof that Paul gives in Romans 8, 31 through 39, is God sacrificed in the past. Jesus sacrificed for you in the past on the cross. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us. If God is for us, <coughs> who can be against us? The first statement is that God is for you. Let's camp on that for a moment. When I say those four words, God is for you, what do you think? How does that, how does that hit you? I, I, I would imagine if you really ponder those words, you'd think, well, I sort of believe that, I, I maybe, maybe I'm doubtful about that. I kind of wonder about that at times. I'm not sure that God is really for me. In fact, sometimes I feel like that might not be true, that he might not be, be for me. Those four words capture the essence of everything that Paul has said in Romans 1 through 8. If you could sum up all of Romans 1 through 8, all of that theology, what you would have to say is that, no, God is for me. 
Now, it is true that at one point, God was against you. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, God being against us in our fallen state was a being against us because he wanted to draw us to himself. God's wrath revealed from heaven is a being against us, forcing us to understand the consequences of our sin and our need to turn to him. Like what C.S. Lewis said, sin and evil increase at compound interests. That's why little decisions, that's why little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. You know, I, I could say before I came to Christ, it wasn't that bad. I didn't do that many bad things. But C.S. Lewis' statement is true. Those things that I did pre-Christ were compounding. And God loved me too much to allow me to continue in that direction. He was against me in that sense. So what does God do in order to, to change that? C.S. Lewis said it again. God pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of the rebel soul. You know, it's a, real, it's, a, it's a bad thing when you're rebelling against God and your life works. It's a bad thing. You're rebelling against him, but life is working really, really well, and you think you don't need him. And C.S. Lewis says, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of the rebel soul, so that we will come to him. So notice what God does once we, <clears throat> once we uh, begin this, this process. Romans chapter 3, he teaches the truths of substitution. Jesus died in our place on the cross. He was our substitute. He was the one that took the hit for our sins on the cross, in our place. Romans chapter 4, we get the truths of justification. That God makes a, a decision to legally say, you are not guilty. You are now righteous. I impute righteousness to you. We get the truths, we get the results of justification in Romans chapter 5. Practical things like we have peace with God. And there's purpose now in our suffering. Now you see how God is for us moving us toward himself. And then in Romans 6, 7, and 8, he switches gears and he shows us how God is for us in our spiritual growth. We're free now from the power of sin. We're free from the law as a way of defeating sin. We're free in the power of the Spirit. In other words, God is doing all these things to bring us to himself, allow us to grow in Christ so that we become transformed people. And so then you get to Romans 8, 29, 30, and we see this incredible statement. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Think about how, how much God is for you. Jesus comes to the cross. God gives us his Holy Spirit to grow. But then this statement comes out of left field. Because these are five things that God does to move us from where we were in our rebellious state to where we will be in heaven. Four of these are past tense. One of them, well, all five are past tense, but one of them hasn't happened yet. It's the glorification part. 
That, that's kind of weird grammatically because that, that hasn't taken place, and yet it's stated as if it's in the past tense, stated as if it's, it's a done deal. From eternity past to eternity future, God works, and God says it, your, your future glorification is so, so secure. It's like it's a done deal. It's like it's already happened. It's already happened. So let's get back to the big picture. God is for you, and he's proven it. In the past, Romans 3.21 through 5.21, God provided the payment for our sin. Romans 6.1 through 8.29, God provided the power for our spiritual growth in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.30, he provides the promise of our eventual glorification as if it's already a done deal. Now, here's the thing. When Paul says, God is for us, those are not idle words. They're not idle words. He has backed that up by those things that you see on the screen. He has done so much to prove and demonstrate that he's for you. So if you entertain the idea, God's not for me. God, God doesn't like me. God is mad at me. God's disappointed with me. God thinks I'm a loser. God thinks I'm an idiot. Ah, oh, I've screwed up again. I can't get this right. If you say those things or entertain those things in, your, in the secret, quiet recesses of your soul, you are not living according to that reality. And that reality says God has done everything needed so that he can say that he is for you. So let me just pause and ask you a question. Are you living in that? Can you boldly and confidently say, God, you are for me. And I'm going to joyfully live in that reality. That's what God wants for you in the year 2017. He wants you to joyfully live in that reality. Now let's move to the, to the, the next statement <coughs> that Paul makes in uh, verse 32. And statement number two is a statement that says this. Um, not only is God for us, but this verse says that God is generous in the way that he's for us. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. God is for us. He is generous. Now, again, I'm going to ask you the question in, in just a moment. Do you have the sensation about God that he's generous to you? In other words, do you ever, do you ever sit and go, God, you are so amazing. You are so generous to me. I am walking in the midst of your abundant generosity. Do you say that? Well, here's what he means by this. Here's what he means by this. Along with all that I said before, he wants to give us this thing called all things. Now, have you ever noticed that when you buy expensive products, that the sellers of those products throw a lot of free stuff in, a lot of bonus stuff in? I've used this illustration before at Grace, but 22 years ago, we, we bought a black Ford van, an Econoline 150 that was affectionately named by my children's friends, the Mackle van. Because we would pick up a lot of kids in that van and go places like the K-Life or On the Rock Ministries or other places like that. It was the, oh, the Mackle van is here. The Mackle van has come. 
We, we went all over the place with that van, but we bought the van in a down market for cars. And when we, we finally were about to, to, to make the decision, the car dealership threw, threw in a bunch of free stuff, like a TV and a video cassette recorder. If, it, if you remember what those were, video cassette recorder. He threw that in. <coughs> they threw in a trip down to Corpus Christi. All expenses paid. And there were a bunch of other things that were thrown in as well. <coughs> Sometimes when you buy expensive stuff, a lot of extra things are thrown in. When I bought my wife's anniversary present for a 30, 30th wedding anniversary about seven years ago, um, I bought this piece of jewelry, and the jeweler threw in a bunch of other cool stuff uh, along with that, a cool box and a pouch that it went in and all sorts of neat things. God does the same thing on the epic scale. He says, I'm not just going to provide you with salvation. I'm going to throw in so many abundantly generous gifts, it's going to blow your mind. Well, uh, what are, what are those, those gifts? Well, the essential gift is, is so surprising that most of us take it for granted. The essential gift is that the moment you come to Christ, you live in the presence of God's kingdom realm, his kingdom realm. As, even as I say that, you, you probably think, what? <laughs> like, what, what is that? What, what, what do you mean, what, what, his kingdom realm? The moment you come to Christ, God invites you into this moment-by-moment moment empowered relationship where you're literally in his kingdom realm, in his kingdom reality, in his supernatural kingdom sphere of power. Now, a lot of people don't get taught that when they come to Christ. They don't get taught that. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm saved now. What, 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 what do I do? Well, the answer to that question is, I live in the midst of the supernatural presence of God, like 24-7, like in an ongoing way. That gift is so abundantly generous that it transforms everything about your life. I see my work differently. I see my family differently. I see the nature around me differently. I, I see everything differently. It becomes a, a complete entire worldview by which I live my life. Will he not also give, freely give us all things. Well, the all things is the ability to live in this abundant new reality right now. That's what Jesus said is eternal life. What was eternal life? Eternal life is that they might know God. Or he says in John 5, 24, truly I say to you, he who hears my words has eternal life in the present right now. If you have Christ, right now you are living in the midst of eternal life. So here's a test question. When do I get my eternal life? Do I, do I get it when I die? No, you don't get it when you die. You get it now. You are living in the midst of that eternal life right now in the present where God wants to pour out this thing he says are all things to you. Well, what do those all things entail? They, they may be the empowerment of the Spirit, answers to prayer, the abiding presence of Christ, spiritual gifts, the pouring out of God's joy, and so on. 
it also includes the things that are going to come in the future. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created. That's the exact same Greek word as Romans 8.32. Now, you get to heaven, and you stand in heaven, and you look at, at the joys and glories of heaven, and you say to yourself, wait, all this is mine? Seriously? Jesus, all this is mine? And the answer to that question is yes. Why? Because you're a joint heir with Jesus. And so not only do you get the, the all things now as your eternal life has already begun, but you get the all things later as well. God is not only for you, he is incredibly generous. So my question for you is, are you living with a sensation of God's generosity? Well, I will tell you, that is a discipline to be cultivated in the new year. It's primarily cultivated through thanksgiving and gratitude. Because sometimes we, we don't see all the great things that God has done. I remember when I was a little kid, in fact, I thought about this when we were in North Africa for Christmas because I remember that very distinctly as a little kid, my parents giving me every present that was on my list. Every present. It was like the best Christmas ever. I was probably seven or eight years old. The best Christmas ever. And then I went to my friend's house and he had better gifts than I had. And I, and I remember coming back and saying to my parents, I didn't get anything that I wanted for Christmas. Now, what was that? What was that? That, that was me in my little seven, eight-year-old mind comparing myself with my friend. So you know what I did? I traded the presents on my list with his presents. And, and that was a big mistake. That's a big mistake. Well, what about you? Here, God has given you all things. And it's easy to not live in the midst of that, of, of that generosity because we think, I don't, I don't have as much as they have. And I'm not blessed like that family is blessed. And I, I want more out of life, God. And so what do we do? We don't walk in a sense of, of, of the abundant generosity of God for what we do have. We walk with an entitled mindset of disappointment for what we don't have. Sensing the generosity of God is a spiritual gift, uh, is a spiritual discipline, I, I should say. Now, the next thing that <coughs> he says in verse 33 is that God, not only is he for us and that he's generous, but he permanently justifies us. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who brings a charge against God's elect? You know that vice presidential candidates are extensively vetted? You know that. Like, when Mike Pence was vetted, uh, there was a big binder that had everything known about his life, personally, professionally, politically. And that extensive vetting was to hopefully not uncover surprises during, the, during the, the process of campaigning. How would you feel if somebody showed up at your door this afternoon, knocked on the door, 
We got the binder here. We're going to go through every detail of your life and see if there's anything for which we can condemn you. How'd you feel about that? Shut the door. No thanks. You don't want that. Could they find something? Most likely, they could find something. And you don't want that to be found out. So is it possible that somebody would bring a charge against you? Well, um, I, I would say that's, that's entirely possible. Uh, the evil one is certainly somebody who loves to bring charges against God's elect. Job 1 and 2. The evil one comes against Job, the greatest man in the world at the time. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He wants to accuse us before the throne of God. And uh, is God going to allow anyone to bring up a charge against you? First John 2, 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He will plead your case. Now, here's what I'm finding that a lot of people go through. They're not worried about somebody else bringing a charge against them. They bring charges up against themselves. And they live in the guilt of the past. I read a book recently by an ex-Navy SEAL, in fact, Ryan Zinke, who is now the Interior Secretary. And he said, you know, his problem when he was growing up was not fear of failure, it was shame of failure. A lot of people feel shame of failure. It's not others that bring a charge against God's elect. It's themselves who bring up the charge against themselves. And what Jesus would say to you is, look, I'm your attorney. Nobody can bring up a charge against you, not even you. I've taken care of it on the cross. Now, can, can you just sit in that for a second? and bask in the reality of that for a second? God loves you so much, he says, I am for you. I am generous toward you. And I am your advocate. I plead your case before the Father. You can't even bring up a charge against yourself because I took care of that thing for which you feel guilt and shame. Well, that's the first reason why God loves us. I spent a lot of time on that. But let me give you the second proof of God's love. Not only does God demonstrate his love in the past through his death on the cross, but Jesus in the present is constantly, constantly working on your behalf. Romans 8.34, little section of Romans 8.34, 8.34b. Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who presently intercedes for us. Notice that most of the verbs in uh, verses um, 31 to 34 are either in the past tense or the future tense. This one is in the present tense. And Paul wants us to think about the present ministry of Jesus. So where is Jesus right now? Well, you say, okay, he's, he's in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Well, we only say that metaphorically, right? Because in reality, Jesus is, is everywhere. God the Father does not have a right hand. He is pure spirit. Jesus can't be at the Father's right hand. Being at the Father's right hand is a declaration of Jesus' authority 
in the universe. Jesus is the authoritative high priest, the authoritative intercessor, the one who can bring the real needs of Rod McIlvain before his Abba Father, the real needs of you before Abba Father. He has the authority to be your high priest and to intercede on your behalf. Now, what I find amazing about this is you, you think, okay, if the triune God is sovereign over the entire universe and beyond, that they would only be involved in high-level stuff, like high-level meetings, the science of the universe, the formation of new stars, the coming together of new galaxies, wanting to avoid a galaxy crash out in some sector of the universe. Only high-level stuff. What we find in this verse is that he is involved in your life, your life, not high-level stuff, but your life, even the insignificant things in your life, as if you were the only one he had to worry about. He's interceding for you as your high priest, and he's interceding for you accurately according to your real needs before your loving Abba Father. That is amazing. So do you need comfort? He prays. Do you need power? He, pro he provides. Do you need friendship? He prays. Do you need recovery from addiction? He intervenes. Do you need his presence? Well, he, he comes. Do you need financial provision? He provides. Do you need uh, release from guilt and shame? Well, he's going to provide that. He is constantly interceding for you. He, in fact, Hebrews 7.25, he lives to constantly intercede for you. Here Jesus could be involved in, in thinking about, I want to do something really cool in some sector of the universe that nobody even knows about on planet Earth, and I'm going to do that thing. It's going to be amazing. No, he's concerned about your job, your marriage, your child. He's concerned about your struggles. Now, hopefully that should give you confidence to know you are loved by Jesus. You are on his heart every day, 24-7. He is praying for you. Do you sense God's love in that? There's not a moment of your day that goes by where Jesus is not interceding for you. He, Hebrews 7.25, he constantly lives to make intercession for you. That's proof of his love. I do, there's times where we just have to sit in that and say, yes, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I, but I receive that. Now, I passed over that one really quickly. Let me get to the third proof of God's love, and that is the radical security that we have in his love. This radical security is, is, really, is really something to behold. Before I, we read it, I want you to notice that this passage begins with the, the question, what shall we say? And it ends with the statement, I have become convinced. That's a question mark. It should be an exclamation mark. Begins in verse 31. What should we say? Ends with, I have become convinced. And certainty of victory is a spiritual discipline. Here's, here's the, the, the amazing thing about, about doubt and certainty. Track with me on this. Sometimes... Certainty seems fragile, and doubt 
seems really more real than certainty. Like, like I can, do, do, I, do I doubt this or do I become certain about this? Well, it seems a whole lot easier to doubt something than it is to feel certain about it. And when Paul says, I have become convinced, Paul is essentially saying, I've become convinced on the basis of my spiritual discipline of meditating on my security in the Father's love. That's my hope for you, is that you enter into that spiritual discipline of saying, I have become convinced. And so Paul is going to demonstrate this by showing us categories of life that can't touch us. And here's category number one, future disasters. Future disasters cannot touch us. What, what Paul does is he gives us seven future disasters. Future disaster number, numbers one and two are distress and tri tribulation and distress. So these are things that go from bad to worse. These are things that like go from uh, mildly bad to absolute worst case scenario. So the question is, can tribulation and distress separate us from God's love? His answer is, nope, can't happen. Then he gives us the next one, persecution. What happens if I get persecuted for my faith? That's not going to separate from God's love. Next one, he says, is famine and nakedness. Famine being without food, nakedness being without clothes. And so he's saying, could, could that possibly separate me from God's love? Answer, no, it won't. Then he brings in uh, another problem. How about peril and sword? Like how about all-out warfare, like what's happening in Syria? You know, that we, we have had interactions, um, I say uh, we, I have had interactions from, with people from Syria who have said God's presence among the believers in Syria who were under threat of persecution and torture and death, God's presence seems so amazingly abundant that we are living in the midst of God's, God's loyal love. His, his wonderful protection and his grace. I say protection, people, you know, are, are, are being killed and, and harmed, but they, they, they sent the, the outpouring of his love. Paul lists seven things that could possibly take place. And, and, and then he says, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Life could throw its worst at us in 2017. And, and we could say to ourselves, well, if that happens, I'm, I'm defeated. Peril, nakedness, sword, tribulation, distress, that happens, I'm, I'm a goner, I'm defeated. And Paul says, mm, no, no. In all these things, we have the potential for overwhelmingly sensing his conquering spirit. So it blows me away about talking to some of these people from Syria or Cuba or Russia. And they would say, the worst things got the more we sensed God's abundant supernatural presence in our midst. Now, Paul mentions another set of problems. Uh, he mentions future disasters. He also mentions <clears throat> the fear of death in verse, uh, verse 38. I'm convinced that, um, verse 37, um, ver uh, let's see, uh, yes, verse 38. Um, I'm convinced that neither death nor life um, 
then he goes on and says, will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So you say to yourself, okay, so maybe some, some future bad things might happen that could separate me from God's love. What about death? Is it possible that the death could separate me from God's love? Well, I think probably most of us fear at some level death and dying. Maybe some of you have come to the place where Paul is where you say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A lot of people I talk to who are reasonably healthy say, yeah, I have a bit of fear about death. Can that separate you from God's love? Listen to what Jesus said. He said, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's the idea that, okay, if I know Christ, the experience of my death is a simple passing from one realm to another realm, an instantaneous passing where I'm fully conscious, I'm fully awake, I fully sense what's going on, and I am passing from this life into the presence of Jesus Christ. No, death can't separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ. And then he gives us a third category. Okay, we've got future disasters, future fear of death. What about future powers? And here's what I find is, is really interesting. Uh, I'm convinced that neither uh, angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I'm going to show you what, what, he's, what he's doing here with a little chart. Angels and principalities obviously refer to supernatural beings. They can't separate you from God's love. Then he says, things present or things to come. What gives us a clue about this is he says, or powers. So what he's saying is, he's saying, could current political powers, or could future political powers separate us from God's love? Answer that question is, no, it can't. No matter what happens in the future politically, it's not going to separate you from the love and the presence of God. All right, what about height nor depth? What about spatial distance? What, like, like, what if I go to North Africa or China? Obviously, God is in those places. What if I go to the moon? What if I go to Mars? Yeah, the God of the universe is there. Spatial distance can never separate you from the love of God. Okay, what about, what about me? Because he uses this catch-all phrase, or any other created thing. What about me? Could I separate myself from God's love? And Paul's, Paul's answer is, no, you can't. You can't do it. You can't do it. So what what Paul's doing here is he's saying to us, saying to us, if, if you want to live with overwhelming victory in the year 2017, you have to be convinced that the Father loves you passionately and unconditionally. And not just have a little bit of intellectual belief in that, but that you embrace that as a full-orbed spiritual discipline. You live in the sense that, God, you're for me. God, you're generous to me. God, you are abundantly good to me. You live in that, you live in that reality. And I will tell you, that's a spiritual discipline. That's a spiritual discipline. 
You neglect the spiritual discipline, and what voices come into your head? I'm not good enough. I'm having a bad year. God's not pouring out his goodness to me. Those things. That's, no, you've got to have that, that spiritual discipline that, that, that recognizes I'm living in the midst of God's abundant generosity now. I'll close with this. Years ago, I met a, met a man who said he grew up in a, in, a, in a church where his relationship with God was always in doubt. He always was thinking he screwed up, always thinking that God was looking down from the sky on him and that God was displeased with him and that God was angry with him for picky little things that he had done. He had a flawed view of God. Got into his early 30s and became very successful in the Dallas real estate market. And he said, you know what? Forget about it. I can't measure up to that kind of God. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And so he did what he wanted to do for five years. And I met him when he had come back to Christ. And here's why he came back to Christ. He came back to Christ because at the, at the lowest point in his life, he had an encounter with God's unconditional love. He said that, that sense of God's powerful, unconditional love made him turn his life around. And he said, I, I had never felt anything like the love of God, which I encountered in that supernatural moment. And he said, it, it radically turned my life around. And I had to repent of my wrong view of God. As you go into the year 2017, maybe you need to repent of a wrong view of God, that he's against you, that he's mad at you, that he doesn't like you, and embrace this view of God's radical love, that he's for you, that he loves you, and that he wants to give you the all things that he mentioned in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Well, um, that's a great opportunity for us to transition to communion. And as you come to communion, we're just remembering this wonderful event uh, at the Last Supper, where Jesus is with his disciples, and he takes the bread, and he breaks the bread, and he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. Take this in memory of me. Then he took the cup, and he, he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And as they would look at the dark purple liquid in that cup, and they were reminded of the redness of shed blood, and they realized, I'm, I'm consuming this thing that is the symbol of blood. I'm ingesting, I'm taking in the reality of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what they were thinking. As you come, I, I, want, you to, you know, to, I want us to meditate on the cross. But I, I also want you to, to meditate on the love of God that is represented by the cross. And so as, as you come, I just want you to come in a spirit of gratitude and a spirit of thanksgiving. If you need to confess some sin, please do it. But I want you to come with a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving that God is for you. And then commit the ear to him while you're taking communion. You come as you feel led, and uh, if you want to light a candle to celebrate answered prayer, you're more than welcome to do that. The candles are at either side of the stage. Uh, let's worship the Lord who loves us unconditionally.